Uh, sure is a privilege to be up here this morning to bring God's Word, uh, to bring it home to us, to be able to maybe change an attitude that we may have, or to change maybe an action. And it, it is definitely a privilege to come and to, to open up the Word with you. Let me open up with a word of prayer. Dear Father, I want to thank you so much. I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you that we can read it, that we're in a place and a position to be able to read your word. I pray, Father, also that as we come, that my words would be only directed by you. That the, my dear brothers and sisters, as they hear, that you would allow your spirit to allow them to hear what needs to be heard, Father. I pray that I would be responsible with your word. Father, I also think of so many people uh, that may be going through difficult times uh, this Christmas season. I pray that you would be with them, that although hope is redefined, it's not lacking. I pray, Father, that they would be able to, to see this hope today. Father, I just just comes to mind, I pray for, for Pastor Wayne. I know that as he had filled the, the, the pulpit in the, in the months past, I pray now, Father, as he's searching for a job, that you would be his comfort, that you would be his guide, that you would be his strength, Father. In your wonderful name I do pray. Amen. One of our greatest philosophers that has actually made it, made it probably into every single home uh, has stated it really well. Dr. Seuss in How the Grinch Stole Christmas. You guys have probably seen or at least heard this many times for years past. And yet the story is of a Grinch who is angry at Christmas. There's nothing that he likes about it. He doesn't like what it looks like. He doesn't like what it sounds like. In fact, he wants to do something incredibly evil. And so he comes up with this plan and he goes down into the village when everybody's sleeping on Christmas Eve and starts stealing all the presents and all the wreaths and even all the what they call the roast beasts. And so they take it with them, and he puts it inside this huge sleigh. You guys have probably seen the cartoon or the movie that came out not too long ago, and he, he takes it up to the very top of this mountain. And he's about to dump it when he has an idea that he wants to hear all the people in Whoville crying. So he kind of pauses a little bit and puts his ear out to listen to the people crying. And this is where we pick up the story. Every who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without a presence at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming. It came. Somehow or other, it came just the same. And the Grinch, with the Grinch feet ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, and bags. And he puzzled three hours till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. And not to reduce the Bible to Dr. Seuss, but in much the same way, the passage that we're going to be looking at today is a story. There's power in stories. There's so much power in stories, because not only do we see what we're supposed to be, but we see it lived out. And that should be a lot of hope for us because we can read a lot in the Bible. We can say, okay, I'm supposed to do this, this, and this. But when it actually comes down to living it, it's really hard because life circumstances mess it up. It gets sloppy. 
And that's the power of story. Because we see it lived out. We see an example that's set before us. Now, from this story, many applications must be drawn and can be drawn. However, there is one main purpose for Luke to include the story in the telling of Jesus' life. There's one main purpose. Christmas means more because of Jesus, the Savior of the world. Yeah, he could have talked, I could have preached a lot about Theophilus and how Luke was writing a letter. We can't ignore that because it's part of the context. We can't ignore the fact that there's a lot of older people. Uh, we, we think of uh, the sermons in the past that have come before God and have willingly allowed God to do with them as, they, as God wills. And even in this passage, we could draw a lot of attention to the age of both Simeon and Anna. And yet, it still rings out loud and clear, Christmas means more because of Jesus, the Savior of the world. In this story, Jesus is presented, Jesus is revealed, and Jesus is proclaimed. Jesus is presented, revealed, and proclaimed. If you would open up your Bibles to Luke 2, Luke 2, starting in verse 22 through verse 38, I'll read just a couple verses at a time. And in this first section, we see Jesus presented, starting in verse 22. And when the time came for the purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. There's a couple of things we can draw from this. We see that Jesus was brought to Jerusalem by his parents. They had just been in Bethlehem, which is about five miles away, and so they're traveling five miles to get to Jerusalem. And they come to the temple, and there they are uh, to do something really special in the life of the Jews. And that's to, uh, first of all, be purified, as, as it was uh, foreordained in Leviticus 12 for Mary. And from that, we can actually deduce that Jesus was just about a month old. He was 40 days old, so he's still a baby. Um, because after circumcision, there's 33 days more until they could be purified. So that makes it about 40 days, and we have a 40-day-old baby. He's still small, still tender. And so they bring him to the temple. Now, the other little fact that we can pull from this is that Jesus did not come from a wealthy family. Uh, we see the verse that says, uh, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, that's in verse uh, 23, sorry, 24. And we, we can notice that this, this family didn't come in with, with, a, with a sheep. They came in with the smallest thing. Leviticus gives this caveat saying, this is what, uh, if, if somebody doesn't have money to be able to pay for the big, big price, we were able to do it with a smaller. And so they come in bearing these gifts. And it's very important that he, that he puts this point in there. So they come in. And then there's also just a whole celebration context into the setting that's echoed from Exodus 13. And it's basically just the revealing of the, the Passover. 
So here's Jesus. He's coming in to be redeemed. And in this whole time, the Passover is being reflected. When they left Egypt, the oldest son of all the Egyptians died, as well as uh, all the, the firstborn animals. And here they are commanded, uh, starting in verse 13 from Exodus 13, Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you want to redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time is, uh, sorry, and when it, when in time to come your sons asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore. I sacrifice to the Lord all the males of the first to open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand, or foretells, and, sorry, or frontals between your eyes. For by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Now we see that Joseph and Mary were very, were very devout. They actually did everything that was expected of them. We see that uh, many times the law of the Lord was being proclaimed and they were kept on obeying it time after time after time. Even before our passage, Jesus was circumcised at the eighth day. Um, There's another part that says, according to the law of Moses, that's written in the law of Moses. And all the customs, they, they fulfilled these in the law of Moses. Then at the very end, it also says that they returned home after performing everything according to the law of Moses. And so they were very devout. They followed everything to a T. Everything that was required, they did. Just as Joseph and Mary were obedient to the Lord, even when they were poor, we are to be obedient to our calling, regardless of what, what may hold us back. We are saved. We are walking in the kingdom. And yet, now there are still rules and regulations that we are to live by. Are we devoted enough to live by these? To draw close to God? To listen to God? We should follow their example as well. Continuing on with the story, because it is a story, we continue uh, pretty quick. It's kind of like this is the fast pace and it's about to, to freeze, it's about to go slow, it's about to go into a dialogue. This is starting in verse 25. This is where Jesus is revealed. And it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. We see many descriptions of who Simeon is in this passage, and, and this is still the beginning of Jesus Revealed. Because he used a man, Simeon, to bring about this revelation of him. We see that he was righteous and devout. Righteous before man in all of his actions and devout before God. Again, another example of how to live a life of devotion to God. He followed all the rules, all the regulations. Sabbath after Sabbath, he rested. And keeping all the festivals year after year. So he was righteous before man in his business. 
Maybe he also was very giving to the orphans and widows as it was precursed in the Old Testament. We also see that he was waiting for something. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, when I, when I saw this, I, I really wrestled. What is the consolation of Israel? What does this mean? And as I looked at the consolation of Israel, I noticed that at the very end of our, of our passage today, there's another phrase that, that is the redemption of Jerusalem, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And we should look at these two as parallel passages or parallel words. It's brought... Uh, it's brought up by Isaiah in Isaiah 52, 7 through 10. And this whole passage is kind of reflected in the, in the flow of this that we're reading. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voices. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Breaking, break forth together in singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. Here we go. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. We see that this is, is reflecting exactly back to the same thing. Only comfort and redemption can come from God. Only for those who are waiting upon the Lord. In fact, also in the whole Old Testament, it's not silent as far as how they are supposed to be waiting. In fact, in, in Psalms, it's, a, it's, a, it's worshipful. And in the prophets, it's a plea. It's saying, please wait on the Lord. And I'm going to read a couple. I could have, the list was endless. I could have picked, uh, I probably could have read about 20 passages that have this in it. But I, I picked just a couple. Psalm 27:14, wait for the Lord be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Isaiah 25.9 It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Isaiah 40.31 But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Lamentations 3.25-26 The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Micah 7.7 7, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. So it's bringing all of this about waiting, and that's part of the devoted life that Simeon has. Not only that, we also notice something else about him. We notice that he was that the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it's actually mentioned three times the Holy Spirit's involvement in this. And throughout the rest of Luke, and actually throughout Acts, we see that the Holy Spirit has a strong presence. It's something that he was wanting to communicate, that the Holy Spirit has to be part of our lives, as it was in Simeon's life. And then we also see kind of a strange fact, and it's something that God did in Simeon's life. He would not see death before he saw the Lord's Christ, or before he saw the Messiah 
before he saw the anointed. And pretty much this is all we know about Simeon. Just as quick as he came onto the stage, we're going to hear what he has to say, but then he disappears. Never again is he mentioned in the Bible. Never again do we, do we know what happened. We don't know if he died right away. We don't know if he lived on for more years. We don't even know how old he is. We're assuming he's older, but he could have been in his 20s. And God told him, you know what? I won't, you won't die until you see me. But that's all we know. Now let's look to what he has to say. We'll start in verse 27. And he came in the Spirit to the temple... And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the customs of the law. Can you imagine going into the temple, into the temple court? You know that the Spirit led you there, but you don't even know what you're looking for at that point. And, and you start seeing uh, men that you think, oh, he looks like a great leader. I'm going to follow him. And maybe he's the anointed of the Lord. Or maybe you see somebody who's powerful come in. And you said, oh, maybe that's who it is. And yet, it was none of them. And, and he sees a poor family walk in with a baby in, his arm, in their arms. And, and, and he's drawn to them. He's brought to them. And, and he can't help himself. But he reaches out and holds in his arms. Starting in verse 28. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now, are you, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. The emphasis here is that it's, it's now, in this very moment, Lord, now you are allowing me to die, is basically what he's saying. Lord, you are allowing me to die. And here, servant, maybe should be translated more like slave, because the word for Lord should maybe be more translated like a, like a sovereign Lord, somebody who is in absolute control. In fact, this word for Lord is only used six times in the New Testament. And it's the idea of a despot. That's, that's kind of where we get the word for despot, um, which is a sovereign ruler, but in today's terms, they abuse their power. But in these terms, it wasn't. But it's, Lord, you are letting your slave depart in peace. For my eyes, for my very eyes, remember, he would not see death before he saw the Lord's anointed. For my eyes have seen your salvation incarnate. My eyes have seen your salvation. This plan of salvation doesn't end at His birth. It follows all the way to His death. Jesus didn't come only to be born. Jesus didn't come only to be an incredible example for how we're to live. Jesus came to save us, to set us free, to give us salvation. And this salvation is only found in His death. His death on the cross. I dare say that when Simeon looked at Jesus, he didn't only see a baby. He, he saw God and man reconciled. The consolation of Israel and every person on earth as well. You see, the Gospel is something that we as Christians should hold on to every single day. The Gospel is not just something that we believed once in our life and that from that point on, now we can walk in salvation. It's something that we should be continually going back to and thanking God for this, this salvation, this Gospel. Because we all know that we, were, that we were sinners. We all know that we were dead in our trespasses. That Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and since that day, it's fallen on every single one of us. There's nothing we can do 
from our own strength. And yet God, in His steadfast love and mercy, sent Christ. And we all know this verse. We've seen it at football games, right? For God so loved the world. Now, just because we see it at football games doesn't mean that it reduces the meaning of it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is what He came to offer. This is what He came to give. It requires a response from each one of us. It requires that we go back to it daily to live in this Gospel, to live in the freedom that it gives. Our salvation. Our salvation. And He continues from there that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, of everybody. Then he, then he breaks this down. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. A light of revelation. He will reveal the true God and the true way to salvation. This is the Gospel. Nothing else. And it's only through this baby that he's holding in his arms that this is coming but so as not to only make it an others-focused, um, the Gentiles, although this was something that had already kind of been precursor, we see it in the Old Testament about the Gentiles being able to find life through Israel. We also see it uh, earlier as well uh, when, when, that, when John the Baptist is born. But this that we've seen only and briefly is now being explicitly proclaimed that it's a light of revelation. But Israel is not left out for the glory to your people, Israel. Israel would wear this like a crown, that through them the Messiah came. And yet it's not done. From this point on, it's not finished. And that's what we as Christians, we have to look forward to. That Jesus will completely make this glory known on His second arrival. And naturally, starting in verse 33, his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fallen rising of many in Israel. Now, this isn't exactly what you wanted to hear. This is, this is the Messiah coming. I mean, people aren't just going like, to follow him. People aren't just going to like run after him and say, oh, he's amazing and everybody's going to love him. No, there's going to be a division for the fall and rising of many. Now, how does, how does he choose those? Second, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth." But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing, sorry, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. You became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption 
so that it is written, let no one boast, sorry, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So some will raise and some will fall. We continue, and for a sign that is opposed, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. For a sign that is opposed, in, in, in the NIV, New International Version, it states, to be a sign that will be spoken against. Or in the New Living Translation, it makes it a little bit clearer. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. Many times we understand the foolishness of not paying attention to signs when we're driving. If we see a sign that posts 55 and we're going 85, we can expect some red flashing lights behind us. If we are driving on a road and there's a sign that says dead end, I hope we can find the brake pedal. If we're driving and it says there's a sharp curve, if we don't listen to it, if we don't pay attention to it, there could be a disaster. And yet this is exactly what happens. He was sent as a sign to reflect and to show the way to God, and yet he was rejected. He was opposed. Both Paul and Peter pick up on this. In 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8, it says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word, as they were destined to do. So many did not follow him. Many opposed him, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Piper says this about that phrase, We understand that what is being revealed is whether a person has a heart humble enough to trust Christ alone for salvation, or whether the person is haughty and must be brought low. Now, you might be wondering why I left out the parentheses uh, that says that a sword will pierce through your own soul addressing Mary. And uh, the reason why I left it out is because it is a parentheses. And that's directly addressed, addressed to Mary. And there's many reasons why people think that this was included there. Maybe it's seeing Jesus at the cross and that was like the, the piercing of her, of her soul. Or it could be that she was finding out how difficult it was to follow Jesus herself that it blurred across family lines and that she had to choose as well to follow Jesus. Whatever the case, both of them, it doesn't sound too, too enjoyable to have a, a, a sword that pierces you. But that's addressed to Mary. We don't have to worry about that. There's no application that we can necessarily draw from that because it was something that was directed to Mary. But when you do see Jesus revealed in your life, seeing who he really is, not who you think he is, not who you wish he was, but seeing who he really is. When he is drawing you to himself, maybe he's convicting you of sin. Humble your hearts to him. Accept that you can't do it. You need a Savior. You need somebody else to take this away. 
So we've seen that Jesus was presented, Jesus is revealed, and now we see that Jesus is proclaimed. Chapter 2, 36 through 38, we see a new face, a new person comes on the stage, and it starts off with this, and there was a prophetess, and almost right there we all want to stop. We all want to say, I I don't want to hear any more about this. But being a prophetess, she actually is in really good company. Uh, the, the sister of Moses was also uh, referred to as a prophetess. Deborah was a prophetess in the time of the judges. And Huldah as well from, from Josiah, from the, from, the, um, from the time that Josiah came into the throne and saw the word of the Lord and there started to be a revival. Huldah was as well part of that in Second Kings 22. She's in really good company. And continuing from there, we continue to see how women are so much part of God's plan. Something that in this time was probably not too accepted. And yet Jesus was moving in this direction. Very purposeful about all the women that he placed around him. Women were sitting at his feet. Women were the first ones to the tomb. And here, at the very beginning, there's a woman, a prophetess. You continue to read, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. So we see that she had pretty much lived a life of widowhood forever, pretty much. And yet she decided to live in this place, to be dedicated to God. And we see that in the verses that follow. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. So are we to believe that she kind of lived at church? No. She was pretty much the person that always was there when the doors were wide open. So if the doors were open, she was there. And she was dedicated and devoted. And so it's really no surprise that at this time she finds herself also in the temple. And it's interesting how she comes to the temple kind of by circumstance. She just walks in. But Simeon is led by the Spirit. And it doesn't matter how God leads us. Sometimes we're just going through what we're supposed to be doing. We're dedicated to God. And all of a sudden we see that something great is revealed to us. And sometimes the Spirit chooses to move us in a direction to understand His Word, to understand something incredibly clearer than we would, or would have ever had before. And yet here she is in the temple. And she kind of, kind of the picture I get is here's Simeon and Jesus. He's holding her. And, and, and here's Anna kind of off to the side listening to everything that is being said of Jesus. And she understands that this is something great. This is something great. So how does she respond? What's her first response? I'm glad you asked, because the exact test brings it right back to us. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God. Do you give thanks to God for Jesus? Do you make that a part of your life? She gave thanks to God. And the next thing is that she began to speak of Him to all. And here's that phrase, who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Christ is proclaimed. Christ is proclaimed. When I was growing up, um, I was actually embarrassed of this. My dad is kind of like a modern-day Anna. And it was kind of funny to have my dad representing Anna, but... He was somebody that was always thankful and he was always talking about Jesus. 
growing up in Mexico City, we'd often take public transportation. We'd get in the combis. So there's three people here, three people here, two people here, and we're, and we're all crammed inside of this little uh, Volkswagen bus. And inevitably, my dad would pull out tracks and give them to people. And then inevitably, somebody would read it and they'd ask him a question. And pretty soon, there were nine people listening to the gospel. And as a kid, I, I wish that I could kind of disappear, fall into the seat cushion of, the, of this combi. But now, seeing that it's such an amazing thing, it's not only something that is recommended for us to do, it's something that we're supposed to do. To take the gospel to everybody around us. Why? Because it's important. Because they need it. So my challenge is, speak to all of the great things you have experienced, heard, and read about Jesus. You may say, well, I really don't know the Word of God that well. Or, or you may think, you know what, but I'm kind of scared, I'm intimidated, I'm an introverted person. Do I really need to be doing this? And the answer is yes. Yes, start with your own experience. If you've had Christ into your life, you know what kind of person you were. I know what kind of person I was. And we start with that and we're able to walk through with people because people are hurting. People need to hear this truth of the salvation of Christ in this season and the seasons to come as well. Now as the band comes forward and the, the prayer partners as well, I'd like to conclude with this. If Christmas is not more in your life, if someone has gone through your house and stolen your celebration and you find yourself crying instead of singing, gaze into the eyes of the Savior and see what He offers you. The Gospel is not only for those who have never heard, it is for us as believers too. Let us gaze into His eyes now, if this is your first time to hear the Gospel, or maybe this is the first time that it actually makes sense to you, don't leave without speaking to myself or to one of the prayer coordinators. I invite you, be the Grinch this Christmas and discover that maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. Because Christmas means more when Jesus is seen as a Savior of the world.
worship, worship, worship. 